Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. As you do, we're really coming to the center point of this gospel. Not so much by volume, even though it's right in the middle, but this is a critical marker in the life and ministry of Jesus that Mark wants us to pay extra special attention to. Mark chapter 9. Let me read the first eight verses. And Jesus was saying to them, this is a group of people who have been walking up the 20 miles from Caesarea to, from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my Beloved son, listen to him. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. My favorite Christmas hymn is one that I asked Aaron if we could sing here in May. Thank you for singing it with us a moment ago. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It was written by Charles Wesley, first published in 1739. And upon examination, it is far more than a seasonal carol. In fact, it's a short course in theology and a short course in Christology. There's a line and a lyric in the second verse that I want to draw your attention to Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as a man, as man, with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Central in that verse is the phrase, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate one who is deity. Well, I hope it's no uh, surprise looking at the title this morning. My title for this passage is a play off of Wesley's second verse. He said, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And here we have flesh unveiled. Unveiled, the Godhead see. What an incredible claim. Wesley is right. To see and hear Jesus is to see and hear God. The word Godhead means the nature of God, all that is God. Wesley is doubly right by noting that the Godhead, the divine nature, was veiled or covered by flesh. 
and was also the dwelling of God for us to see. So it was both veiled and to be seen at the same time. The veil of his flesh was changed after the resurrection, as you know. Now, we'll get here later in Mark, but after the resurrection, Jesus was able to not initially be recognized. He was able to disappear in rooms. He was able to appear in rooms with the doors locked. Wesley wrote, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And remember that the same John, the apostle, who laid on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, so familiar with him, he could, he could nestle up with him because he knew that something bad was about to happen. That same John, upon seeing him in a vision in the isle, on the Isle of Patmos, fell down when he saw his flesh unveiled. He fell down as a dead man at the glory of Christ. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, and now this morning we will see something different. Flesh unveiled. Flesh unveiled to be able to witness and see the nature of God and the Godhead. This is exactly what's about to happen up on the north, in the north of the Sea of Galilee, up on Mount Hermon, likely. When Jesus came to live and minister in the land of Israel, he came humbly Philippians says, he came unrecognizable. He looked like any other Jewish person who grew up, man who grew up in Galilee until he began to speak and perform his miracles and teach. He came in the flesh of true and genuine humanity, but up on the hill in Mount Hermon, when he pulls these three men aside, he gives them a glimpse of his divine glory. And you and I are gonna be escorted up and have a front row seat to see what they saw. Let's look at this passage together and discover with one another four views of Christ's kingdom glory. Four views of Christ's kingdom glory. Let me explain what I mean by that. Peter, three decades later, is gonna reflect back on this time, we'll see it in a few moments, and call this the revelation of Christ's glory. And also here, as we'll see in just a very short time, Jesus is going to talk about this, this incident, this, this, this situation, this event as the revealing of his kingdom. Put those together, Peter's recollection and uh, Mark's calling this to our attention, Jesus' own words. This is a view of Christ's kingdom glory. I trust that'll make sense as we work through these verses. Let's look first, number one, at the promise of Christ's kingdom glory. The promise of Christ's kingdom glory. Verse one, Jesus was saying to them, the Greek is intense here. It didn't mean that Jesus said it and moved on. Jesus was talking about this with them. He was saying this to them. The, 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 the force of the Greek verb meant he was having a, an ongoing conversation, not one and one and done. He was talking to them, teaching them, saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Peter has just identified Jesus as the Christ. You'll remember at the end of chapter eight. And Jesus has just outlined the definition and the cost of true discipleship. In short, the true king of the world and his true citizens have just been identified. So think about this. The kingdom is made up of three things, a, a king, a people, and a place. And you have the king who's identified, you're the Christ, Peter said. You have the people who are the disciples and actually they are standing in the place where one day this would come to full and fulfilled fruition in the north of Israel. So Jesus' promise here fits. All that is left is the kingdom to become visible. The king is here. The citizens are being brought into the kingdom. This promise makes perfect sense. Some, not all, 
Not all of them would see this coming kingdom, however. He says, some of you, specific. He doesn't say, in a little while, I'm going to take this whole group of large crowd who'd followed him up there. We're going to go up and I'm going to show you my kingdom glory and we're going to have a wonderful time. He doesn't say that. He says, some of them would see it. More specifically, some of them would not taste death until they saw it. Now, why is that important? Because Jew after Jew, time after time, generation after generation, had longed to see the coming kingdom of God. They lived and hoped and died and lived and hoped and died and lived and hoped and died. And Jesus says, some of you standing here are not going to die until you see Something unique and special. The kingdom of God after it has come with power. What in the world is this talking about? What does it mean? Well, some, just for your own study, think that this was a promise of the resurrection and ascension. But that doesn't really fit because all of them except Judas would have seen that. Not just some of them. And if he was going to only isolate Judas here, it seems like he would have been more specific. So what is the Lord talking about? When you look at all three synoptic gospels, remember the synoptic gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They put this exact promise right before the transfiguration. As we talk about over and over and over, the most important principle to consider in Bible interpretation is, what is it? Context, good. Context, context, context. If all three synoptics say this was the promise and right after this promise, Jesus shows his, his unveiled glory up on Mount Hermon, we would connect those two with very good hermeneutical confidence. The context immediately following this promise in all three accounts is the transfiguration. So whatever happens at the transfiguration, it makes sense. That is the point at which Jesus is going to isolate some and reveal to them his kingdom. What is this about? In what sense did some of these men see the kingdom of God? Remember, John the Baptist has already said that the kingdom of God is not way out in the future, but it is indeed present in a sense right now. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. John had been taken into custody. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the exact sermon that John had been preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus picks that up and says, yes, the kingdom of God is in some sense here. What's the sense that it was here? The king in the flesh was ruling through his teaching and his authority in that real estate. In other words, the kingdom was present in that two of those three elements were present. Remember, it's a king, a people, and a place. The king and the people were being identified and organized. And the place was indeed there, but it would not come to fulfillment until a future time. So in what sense would some of these men see the kingdom? Well, again, all three of these Synoptics point to the transfiguration right after that. Having just talked about his coming death in verse 31 of chapter 8, the demands of discipleship at the end of chapter 8, the Lord radically resets the expectation of, of the disciples from this triumphalism that Jesus, the Messiah, will come and right all wrongs, destroy the Romans, sit on the throne, as we'll see in the next chapter, in the next few verses, and then bring these special men together to to sit on his right and left, perhaps. Jesus, over the next few chapters, is very deliberate to reset their expectation and understanding of the kingdom, especially of the Messiah. Now remember, back in 831, that's the first prediction of his suffering and death. You're the Christ. 
You're the son of the living God. We have figured it out. We've answered the question that you most want to know. We got 100%. Peter, talking for the disciples, answers the question, who do people say that I am? Correctly, you're the Christ. Then look at verse 31, back in chapter 8. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter takes Jesus aside privately and says, that is not a good plan. I think we should have another plan. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And as we said last week, he's not saying that he was demon possessed. He's saying that you are thinking the thoughts of man, not the thoughts of God. That's the end of verse 33. The men have been in a high speed wobble since that moment. All their expectations, all the momentum, all the crowd. He's rebuking the Pharisees. He's rebuking the scribes. He's rebuking the theologians. And then he says, I'm going to go and suffer and die. And they were indeed in a high speed wobble. What way, what, what is this? So Peter tries to prevent it. And what's about to happen is a divine assurance and a divine confirmation of Jesus as who he said he was and who the disciples had just affirmed that he is and that the path to the cross is actually ordained by the Father who's in heaven. So verse two takes us to the following week where we find our second view of Christ's kingdom glory. The promise, it's, you're gonna see something, there's the promise in verse one. Number two, the unveiling of Christ's kingdom glory. This is verses two and three. The unveiling of Christ's kingdom glory. And remember when Peter, we'll get here, when Peter is reflecting back on this 30 years later, he says we saw his glory. That's why we're getting that glory from. First of all, six days later, now if you're a good Bible student and you're looking at parallel accounts of this, you will immediately say, time out, fingernails on the chalkboard. There's a problem here. Why? Why is there a problem with this six days later? Well, because Matthew says it's six days later, but Luke, the precise Luke, places it some eight days later. And our liberal friends point to this and say, see, this is an obvious contradiction in the Bible. How can you trust anything it says as historic when these two gospel writers can't even get their numbers together? How do we understand this apparent contradiction? Let me say this first, unashamedly, unbashfully. Okay, eye contact for just a minute, ready? I assume... Going into talking about these two things, I assume there is no contradiction. Just, you need to know that. God doesn't lie. My view of scripture, I think yours too, is that God doesn't contradict himself. So the question is not, is there a contradiction, but how do we understand this? It's not difficult. It's not difficult at all to explain. Luke included the day that the Lord made the promise and the day of the transfiguration, while Matthew and Mark referred to the six days between those events of travel. You say, how can you explain that? If I were to show you this stage over here, you could count this stage as one, two, three, four, five steps, including the bottom and the top. You could also call it four steps, one, two, three, four, including the top. Or you could exclude the bottom floor and the top and say there are only three steps. And all of those would be correct depending on your perspective. So it makes sense that Luke says, well, it was eight days, the day of the promise and the day of the transfiguration. And uh, Matthew and Mark say, well, actually, it's just the travel days. This is not a contradiction. Okay, enough on that. Let's keep going in verse two. Jesus took with him, six days later, it's been about a week, 
Peter and James and John, and they brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was changed or transfigured. He experienced the Greek word is metamorphosis before them. By the way, Mark is not specific about the location of this event. However, the most likely is Mount Hermon, which is the ridge line that dominates the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's the highest position that point there. Now, I think we need to think, kind of step back and think about this event in the shadow or as an echo of another event. It has striking parallels, obvious parallels For when Moses went up and met with Yahweh, the Lord, on Mount Sinai himself, it's up away from the people. It's exclusive. Only if you are invited. Moses alone was invited in that first encounter by invitation only. It involved a significant revelation of God. It included Moses himself. It records the very voice of God from heaven. It includes a cloud of divine glory. And it also includes the glory motif itself, which is interesting when you look at that. Now, just let's take a theological aside for a moment. We've discussed this sometime in the past. The word glory is significant. It's translated the same in English from two words, one in Hebrew and one in Greek. The word kavoth is the word in Hebrew. It means weight, heavy, substance. Something so substantial, it outweighs everything else. I like to think of that time that my father and I were working on this little uh, 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 balsa wood piece for uh, uh, the, what is it, the derby? What's it called? The uh, Pinewood Derby. Yeah, we had, we made this Pinewood Derby car and, and I went to bed and the next morning he brought me my Pinewood Derby car that we'd, we'd whittled out and carved and he gave it to me. He put it in my hand and it fell to the table. Because overnight, he brought it up to specifications. He had put lead inside of it. It was far more substantial and weighty than I thought. That's the idea of kavod. It's heavy. It's weighty. It's substantial. That's the Hebrew notion of glory. God is kavod, full of kavod. The New Testament is the word doxa. And almost every time in, in, in extra biblical literature, the word doxa is translated, it is brilliant light. It's talked about in reference to the sun. You know what I find just as a devotional reflection on that? Revelation 1 says that Jesus showed up and he was brighter than the sun. Think about that. When you take a glance at the sun and you immediately close your eyes, what do you see? The sun. You know why? I talked to a physician who told me this. He says the the power of the sun is so strong, it actually hits the, the, the back of the eye and paralyzes the nerves, so that they can't release that image quickly. It's so stunning. Isn't that a great devotional thought? To look at the glory of Christ is to close your eyes and walk away and not be able to forget what you've seen. Both of those ideas of glory come together here. His weightiness and his brilliance. Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter and James and John. Don't miss, please don't miss this. I love, I love this about our Lord. For a week, Peter has no doubt been pouting and sulking. He was publicly rebuked by Jesus. You gotta wonder what the other disciples were thinking. Well, he had it coming. I would have said it, but I'm glad he did. And even after that, He still takes Peter with him. A great study is to see the grace in Peter's life. After he denies the Lord, what will happen? He will give him a chance to respond. He says, to shepherd my sheep. Just a beautiful picture of redemption, of forgiveness. He gives you a look into our God and our Christ. He's not a one and done guy. He is a great and forgiving God. Now we come to the amazing moment. 
The text tells us that Jesus was transfigured. And the Greek word is metamorphoon. It simply means he was changed. Now, I want to confess, I, I poured over lexicon and dictionary after dictionary this week. I looked at multiple commentaries so I could really try to figure out what this meant. And you know what I found out? He was changed. That's as descriptive as it gets. We'll see some of the effects of that change in a moment. Something changed. He looked differently than he did when they went up the mountain. This verb, by the way, occurs only four times in the Greek New Testament. Uh, and one of the times you know well, Romans 12, 1 and 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's metamorphosis. 2 Corinthians 3, 8 is another time. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, same word, changed, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. He is actually doing metamorphosis on a believer from one level of glory to another, changing us into his image that the men saw, that they saw and experienced on the mountain. Unbelievable. So how was he transfigured? Well, Luke 9, 29 and Matthew 7, 2 tell us that his face became brilliant. His face lit up. Which doesn't surprise us when we know Revelation 1 because that's what John saw. His face was brighter than the sun. This is the kingdom glimpse that he promised. This is what he will look like and be like in his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, which he showed very clearly to John in Revelation 1. Verse 3. We found out about his clothes and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white. The Greek is, is interesting. Whiter than white. White, 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 white. And then, then Mark adds this, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. You'll remember in the ancient Near East, there was no such thing as bleach. Bleach is a powerful substance. Ask a first year college student who put bleach in his laundry with a red sweatshirt from books I've read. No bleach here. Think about this. They could not make garments white. And anything that was even close to white, even cream, became dirty pretty quickly. So Mark says, this was so white, it was bleach white. He didn't have that terminology, but we do. Brand new white shirt, white, but it was also luminescent. It, it, it ex exhibited light emanation, Luke tells us. These men had never seen such glowing white. And Mark makes the unmistakable note that this was otherworldly whiteness. It was supernatural. It was divine. He was changed and his clothes were changed. Everything about him changed, which is a supernatural miracle in and of itself because it will unchange in just a few verses. He was transformed right before their eyes, changed, but that's not the focus of this startling situation. We call this the transfiguration. I would rather call it the announcement. Because what they hear is far more important than what they saw. We find out in this second view of Christ's kingdom glory that he, he unveiled a vision to say, you said I'm the Christ? You wonder if I'm worth your life and discipleship? I'm going to give you a sneak peek at my glory. A third view of Christ's kingdom glory is in verses four to six, the witnesses of Christ's kingdom glory, the witnesses. Now verse four is just, are you, it's a are you kidding me verse. He's transformed, he's transfigured, he's metamorphosized and he's, he's looks different, he He's brilliant. His clothes are different. And then, verse 4, Elijah appeared. 
along with Moses. The Greek is more explicit. Moses appeared and Elijah was with him. The focus is on Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. It is so understated. I want to know, what were they talking about? I wish Mark had said, and they were talking to Jesus about the coming kingdom. He doesn't tell. They were just talking. Luke tells us, by the way, that they were, woke, woke, they were up there sleeping as Jesus was praying. That comes back to, to, as an echo in the garden. So they're roused out of their sleep. He's brilliant. There's Moses and Elijah. Now, one of the pressing questions that I have, and there is no answer for this, is how do they know it's Moses and Elijah? Did they have name tags? How do you know? Did they introduce themselves? Peter, James, John, Moses. Yeah, I'm Elijah. Maybe you've heard of us. We're not told. How do they know it was them? We don't know. Here's another question, and more importantly, why those two? Why Moses and why Elijah? At this unveiling of his glory. Well, in Jewish thought, Moses was always considered as the prototype of the coming great prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, and, and from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. That's interesting. Moses says, a prophet's gonna come after me like me, and you must listen to him. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will rise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. But God says, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. God says, I will raise this prophet up like Moses. So it makes sense that Moses would be there. What about Elijah? Well, we're going to talk more about Elijah in the next passage. So just kind of suspend all of your thinking about Elijah. He was a forerunner. He also is associated with Mount Sinai in 1 Kings 19, 1 to 9, where he also received the word of God. But what I find fascinating, I wish we had time for this. In Exodus 33, verse 17, Moses says in the tent of meeting, remember there was the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. After the golden calf, God took that leading presence away and they wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness. But that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of cloud by night would come and stand at what Moses calls the tent of meeting, a time when he would meet with God. He would go out to meet with God and the pillar would hover over the tent. In that tent in Exodus 33, 17, Moses says, teach me your derek. Hebrew word for ways. Teach me your way, your ways, that I may come to know you. A way was a path, a well-traveled trail. I want to know the way you travel because if I know the way you travel and the way you are in the past, I'll know how you are in the present because you don't change. He wanted more than the tent of meeting. This is important. We're gonna come back to this. He wanted more than the experience. He wanted the ongoing relationship. Then in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way. Teach me your ways. The greatest expression is Jesus is the way. I imagine if we had given Moses the microphone during the transfiguration, he would have said something like, I looked for the ways of God. This is the way of God, pointing to Jesus himself. Notice also that Mark does not give us the content of their talk, but he does tell us in a moment what the father said. Now, this is what's intriguing. This gave me chills when I discovered this. This is not a meet and greet moment for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. They already knew each other. The second person of the Trinity had dwelt with them for a thousand years already in heaven. 
So when they showed up, it wasn't, who are you? It's, how's it going? They had a relationship. They knew each other. This was not something foreign. They didn't show up and say, oh, you're from Galilee? Jesus, hmm, who are you? They knew exactly who he was. And we don't have any confirmation of what they were talking about. But if we take the context, I think it was probably about the coming suffering, death, and resurrection. Not a first meeting, it's a reunion. The words and works of Moses and Elijah were filled in the Galilean man they were standing before who was brilliantly glorified and speaking to them on this mountain. But <laughs> this is still not the climax of the event. I mean, just think of a good Jew. Three of them, Peter, James, and John. Moses and Elijah are there. Would you want to say, time, can we just... Can we have lunch? Can we, can we talk? I have so many questions. And again, we'll discuss Elijah more in our next passage. Peter, <laughs> Peter gets nervous. And when Peter gets nervous, Peter talks without thinking. Like your pastor sometimes. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, it is good for us to be here. We are so fortunate to be here with you and Moses and Elijah. So he comes up with this plan. Tell you what, let us make three tabernacles. Now don't think tabernacle, think church. Three places of worship. Let's, let's build three honorary locations, one for each of you, so we can make this a permanent situation. Now, before you're hard on Peter, that's a good idea, isn't it? I mean, if Moses showed up, would you want him to disappear? Which he's going to do in a minute. Wouldn't you want to say, I'm so glad you're back. Elijah too, this is fantastic. He wants to build three churches, three tabernacles, three places of worship for Jesus and for Moses and for Elijah. And then verse six is, is funny. It's a moment of, of levity. It's a moment of, of almost humor from Mark's pen. And remember, Mark would have gotten this information from Peter. It's a demonstration of Peter's humility. <laughs> verse six, for he did not know what to answer because they became terrified. He didn't know what to say, so he just said, uh, let's build three churches. But look at verse six. He did not know what to answer, for they became horrified and terrified. And you would too, if you saw Jesus change like that, and two dead men standing before you. His idea is not necessarily a bad one. It's just a forgetful one. Why would he want to make that situation permanent when Jesus had just told him in 831, I'm going to die? Point, he was not listening. He proposed a worship site here on Mount Hermon. It is not by coincidence, but by divine providence that the next thing that happens in all three accounts of this is a voice comes from heaven. Now we come to the fourth view of Christ's kingdom glory, the affirmation of Christ's kingdom glory, the affirmation of Christ's kingdom glory. So while Peter is talking about, you know, church planning strategies, a cloud formed. And overshadowed them. Literally, it's like they were enveloped in a fog and could see nothing. You ever been in a thick fog? You ever been driving in a thick fog and you just had to pull over and you're afraid you might hit something on the way over because it was so thick? Overshadowed them, it, it, it clouded around them to the point of darkness. And a voice, a voice came out of the cloud said this this is my beloved son 
Listen to him. That has to be God the Father because he references Jesus as his son. If things had not been overwhelming enough, they are suddenly consumed in a dense cloud. Again, Sinai should echo in your mind. Exodus 34, 5, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with Moses and he called upon the name of the Lord. Isaiah 6, 1 to 4, remember, Isaiah finds himself in the temple and the whole earth is full of his glory as a reflection of the temple filling with cloud, with smoke. The phenomenon of the cloud is not what's most important. It's the voice and the words that come from the cloud. Now, this is important. This voice, watch this, speaks to them. At his baptism, Jesus is spoken to himself by the Father. This is God the Father speaking to these three men. Three men. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. This is divine affirmation that Jesus is God's son, not just what he did and not what he said, but what the father actually affirmed with his own voice. This is how Mark began his gospel. When it, and it's not hard to imagine that this event was in his mind when he put his quill to scroll. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. You gotta think he was thinking of this transfiguration moment. Then the imperative, the command, listen to him, God says. Listen to Jesus. Remember again what we read earlier, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This context is compelling that the thing that they were to listen to was primarily what he had just told them that caused such a stir, which was his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Oh, sure, God the Father meant listen to all he teaches, all he says. Of course he meant that. But the reference here, the context, what had caused the most stir in all four of the Gospels at this point was that Jesus had predicted not the coming triumphal entry into Jerusalem where everyone would take their places and they would rule and reign. But his substitutionary atonement, listen to him. And can I just say as a footnote, to listen to Jesus, to listen to who he is and what he said he would do and what happened to him and what he willingly offered himself up to be is to understand the gospel, is to hear that yes, he was he was a perfect man. Yes, he was sinless. Yes, he was God, very God and truly man. Yes, he was sent to Jerusalem by his own volition and the prompting of God the Father to die in the place of those who believe. On a cruel Roman cross and rise from the grave. That is a substance of listen to me. This injunction links the transfiguration inseparably from Peter's confession that the Christ, Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus' announcement that he would suffer. I love what James Edwards says. Christology leads to discipleship and discipleship flows from Christology. Listen, friends, your theology, all of the categories of your theology matter and you're all theologians. The question is, is the Bible correcting and informing your theology day by day? Verse eight. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. So much for the church growth strategy in Caesarea Philippi with these three new buildings, right? Right? The language is very graphic, it's sudden, unexpected, a halt and a change. As quickly as this event starts, it ends. You can imagine that Peter and James and John would have loved a more extended conversation with Moses and with Elijah and with God the Father in the cloud. But the voice of God the Father points them to the focus of the event, his son. 
That's a wonderful event, is it not? But here's the question. Okay, so what do we do with that? So what? Sometimes the Bible gives us unquestionable application of itself. In order to see this, I'd like for you to take and turn over in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. The imperative is clear. Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. And actually, we do not have to be creative. We do not have to speculate. But Peter himself is going to give us the takeaway three decades later. But it will likely surprise you. We live in a world that longs for experience. Our charismatic friends are always pushing and promoting and seeking experience. Experience that wants contact with the divine through the senses. You understand that? It wants to sense God. Feel him, taste him, touch him, see him, hear him. However, Peter dramatically contradicts that notion that personal experience through the senses is the ultimate goal of faith. One day faith will be, what? Sight and our senses will be exploding. Read Revelation 4. Every sense of John is short-circuited and what he sees, what he hears, what he smells, everything's overwhelming. One day all the senses will engage God in his fullness in a way that every sense was designed to experience. But we live by faith right now. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter reflects on the transfiguration and this is what he says. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which power and which coming? Jesus said you will see the power of the kingdom. Now Jesus, excuse me, Peter reflects on that power with what occasion? We were eyewitnesses of his glory, his majesty. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, what kind of honor and glory? He was visually transformed. That's the transfiguration. Such an, uh, when we saw that, such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory. Now he calls God the Father in the cloud glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. So we were with him on the holy mountain. Now this is what's surprising to me. Verse 19. We have the prophetic word made more sure or better. Now... You're a good Bible student, I know. Stop and think about that. Peter saw the majestic glory of Jesus. Peter saw Moses and Elijah. Peter heard the voice of the living God, the Father in heaven. And he says, we have something better. We have something more sure, more solid than my experience. What is that? What is the prophetic word made more sure? To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He uses the metaphor of light and darkness again. Until the day draws and the morning star arises in your hearts. What is this prophetic word, Peter? But know this first of all that, here it is. No prophecy of scripture. Prophecy has two meanings in the Bible, foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling is predicting things in the future. Most of the prophets, though, in the Old Testament did less foretelling than they did foretelling. Forthtelling than they did foretelling. Just telling people what God expected and holding them accountable to it. That's the Bible. Prophecy, foretelling, forthtelling of Scripture. He says it's a matter of one's own interpretation. That's not you at me. That's the person who received the revelation that they would write down. How do we know that? For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Here it is. Peter tells us in his debrief that as wonderful as his experience on the mountain was, Scripture is better. That ought to rock our world. 
In a world that so desperately seeks, in a generation that so desperately seeks experience, Peter says, I had a better experience than any of you can ever imagine. And the prophecy, the fourth telling of scripture is more sure and better. So as Peter exegetes this passage, his own experience, he really says, this is the read your Bible more sermon. This is loving scripture because it's the revelation of God. He saw a few minutes of a bright glorified Jesus, but he says the word of God, the written prophecy of scripture is more sure. Think about this. You are holding in your hand in your Bible, you are holding in your hand more of the revelation of God than any author of Scripture ever held in his hand. Think about that. What a privilege. What a privilege to have the entire canon, the entire rule, the entire word of God. The disciples listened to the incarnate word through his teaching and instruction, and we listen to the incarnate word through his written word. What a gift. What a savior, what a God. I, I trust that you have given your life and faith to him. If not, can we talk to you about that? This Jesus is glorified and now sits in heaven, inviting all to come. I love what Edwards says, Jonathan Edwards. He says, his arms of mercy are flung open wide as a door is open and he calls all to come to him. Listen to the incarnate word through his written word and respond in faith. These men must have been so glad that all of their doubts were satisfied. We can read and have even more of our doubts satisfied. Let me pray.